Good morning. All right, so we're going to be in Ephesians as Paige just read for us, Ephesians chapter 1. And as they go, uh, the kid goes, kids go to the rear. We pray your blessing, kiddos. May you receive the word of the Lord as we do the same. Let me, let me uh, stop for a moment and pray. God, I pray that we would know you. Your son taught us that eternal life is knowing you and knowing the son that you sent. And so, God, we, t- we pray for this time that these things would happen in us. We consecrate them, God, by your grace and for your glory. Amen. Well, uh, as I've already heard said today, I, I echo the sentiments of, of some of the things that we've heard, namely that uh, um, I'm disheartened, I'm discouraged, I'm dismayed in the past week um, and the past months. Uh, in my own personal life, I'm sure many of you are. Uh, my mother-in-law lives one mile off of Panama City Beach. So, needless to say, um, I was lamenting time and again this week that we have to live in a world that has hurricanes. Um, I'm uh, discouraged and disheartened at the sort of national conversation, how polarized and tribal we've become, how it's difficult to have a conversation these days. And I'm discouraged by the ways in which some of our folks in our own life of our church have had a hard week. Uh, We've walked with you. You've had difficult spiritual, physical, and emotional times. And I think I've been most discouraged and dismayed even my own self because I continue to struggle with sin years later. Um, Things that I wish was not true of me. I still struggle to um, uh, be cynical at times, which is a form of disbelief. Um, I uh, have fears that I've had for years. I still struggle to love as God has called me to love. And so all of these things, I think what we've learned, what I learned, is that what we want is hope, right? What we want is redemption. What we want is power. And thankfully, friends, that's exactly what we read about today. The same things that we see here in Ephesians 1, 15-23 are the same things that we just hope for. That we would have hope, that we would have redemption, that we would have power. It's a great joy of ours. If you're new to Restoration Church, welcome. So glad that you're here. It's our practice to open up books of the Bible and just work right through them. And uh, we started in the book of Ephesians, uh, gosh, a month or so ago. And we find ourselves in verse 15. And when we look down there, I want you guys to look in there. As your Bibles are open, take a look down there. I want you guys to tell me. You can talk. This is your time in which this is time of the service where you talk. Uh, what are the first three words? For reason. For this reason. For this reason. So whatever comes after this in verse 15, whatever he says next, is built upon what he said before it. Right? We've got to understand what comes before it in order to understand what comes after it, right? So you guys know the first three rules. Joey, I think another has been teaching in the Titus 2 form how to understand, how to read the Bible. You all know the first three rules of Bible's inter- Bible interpretation. First three rules, they're very easy. Same rules you find in, in uh, real estate. Context, context, context. Or location, location, location. You've got to understand the context. And when we see for this reason, we have to understand what came before it. And what came before it is exactly what we've been learning about for the past month or so. That single sentence in the Greek, the original language, from verse 3 down to 14, that's one sentence in the original. 3 to 14, the greatest run-on sentence in the history of the world, where Paul, in that passage, he praises God the Father for the accomplishment of Christ in the plan of redemption. 
And because of what Christ has done, he then goes on to make crystal clear who Christians actually are in Christ. In other words, he rehearses our identity in Christ. And that identity, as we've been seeing, is that we in Christ are, uh, through, by grace, through faith, are adopted sons of daughters. Adopted sons and daughters of God, chosen before the foundation of the world, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, caught up in this great plan of the ages. That plan is the cosmic Christocentric recreation of the world. The restoration of all things in Christ. That's 3-14. to 14. And so Paul, though, then knows that while we need to be reminded of these realities, these positional truths, he also knows that they don't always, that we don't always even experience these realities. And that's what verses 15 to 23 are all about. It's a prayer for illumination that will result in the church in Ephesus experiencing, knowing, discernibly enjoying the realities of our redemption. He has heard, we find there in verse 15, he has heard of the Ephesian church's faith in Christ and love for all the saints. Notice, by the way, that's just another way of saying what Christ said was the fulfillment of the law, knowing God and loving neighbor. And so from prison in Rome, Paul's writing as a prisoner, we learn that later, he's writing as a prisoner in Rome. Paul has heard that the church in Ephesus is trusting Jesus and is loving Jesus' people. And friends, this is true of any healthy church. People love Jesus. They trust Him. They love Jesus' people. And I thank God that this is true of you, this church. That you, your faith in Christ and your love for all the saints is known. I could give you testimony after testimony after testimony. Literally around the world how people have heard about your faith and the way that you are loving Jesus' people. Thank God for you. But Paul goes on there and says that since verse 3 to 14 are all true about the church in Ephesus, and since he has heard about their faith in Christ and love for all the saints, then, verse 16, you'll see I'm just following right along, then, verse 16, he says that he does not cease to pray for them. Which means to say that he's, these, this church is always in his heart and mind as he prays regularly. He prays prayers of thanksgiving for them. And then we see from verses 17 to 23, Paul lists out what the heart of his prayers for the church are. And what he prays for there in verses 17 to 23 is one thing. He prays for one thing that is explained in three ways. He prays for one thing that is explained in three, three ways. So here's the big idea. If you walk away from the sermon today, all right, and you go home and someone asks you, what was the sermon about today? Here's what you would tell them. It's really, really important. It's much more complex sometimes than it sounds, but the big idea today is that we would know God. That we would know God. That's exactly what Paul prays for there. You can see it in verse 17. He prays that we would know God as is evidenced by, or, or as is facilitated through our experiencing the hope of His calling, the riches of His people, and the power of His Son. That's what we see. So Restoration Church in a discouraging world, pray that we would know God. Which is to say, pray that we would experience the hope of His calling, the riches of His people, and the power of His Son. That's the big idea. So let's start with that first one, hope. Pray that we would know the hope of God's calling. So in verse 17, Paul prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory... By the way, I'm so tempted to go into systematic theology. There's so many things that we could say about this. Just that one sentence right there. Right? But nevertheless, we're going to try to stay with what Paul's trying to do here in the letter. 
He says, Paul prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you, that's a second person plural, that's the church, not just singular, may give you, the church, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him. The Him there, the knowledge of Him, is referencing back the antecedent there is the Father of glory. So remembering you in my prayers that the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him. That's one of the main ministries of the Holy Spirit. That He would train you to know God. That's what He does. That's Paul's main request here. His his main request is not that uh, we would be healed of our diseases, not that we would find the right job, not that we would find the right relationship, not that the church would get a building uh, that wasn't in a high school, right? It's not that the, the, the music would somehow get better, that there would be more or less people. Those are not the heart of his requests. The heart of his request is that they would know God. They would know God. So don't lose sight of that request, friends. I, if you're anything like me, it's really easy to pray a lot of personal circumstantial requests, which is good and right. God wants to hear those things. But make sure that at the base of your prayers, there's this heart that you and others would know God. So verses 17 to 23 is a prayer that is preserved for us. That's a prayer. So he's listing out his prayer. Verses 17 to 23 is a prayer that is preserved for us in Holy Scripture so that we would learn how to pray. And we learn that we need to plead to have the Spirit so move in us so that we would know God. Again, so tempted to go down into systematic theology. You see the Trinity right here in this verse. Right? You see the Father, you see the Son, and you see the Spirit all at work doing their part. One God and three persons. Now, it's important to note here that when Paul says that he wants the Holy Spirit to move in such a way as to give them, to give us wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of God, what he's saying there is he's not merely talking about head knowledge. He's not merely talking about head knowledge. He's not saying, I'm really praying that Restoration Church can get down there to Southeastern Seminary, sit in a library and read a bunch of books. Now, that's part of like we need to know, we need to discernibly understand God with our minds. But he's not merely praying for intellectual acquisition. He wants wisdom and knowledge here uh, to be given to them. And that demands information, of course. But friends, recognize that Satan knows far more about the doctrine of God than all of our systematic theology textbooks combined. Wisdom and knowledge of God passes through our intellects, but it needs to move into our hearts. That's what he wants to see happen. That's the goal, to get it down in there. So we know that this is what Paul means because he gives us more clarity there. Just look at verse 18 as he keeps talking, talking about his prayer. Uh, And he explains this prayer of knowing God in verse 18. And he kind of goes on. He says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Now, anybody in the room have eyeballs on your hearts? Right? None of us. Right? Strange thing. Right? In other words, what he's doing there is what Paul is praying for is he's praying that our hearts would be illumined. That's what that word means. Enlightened means. That our hearts would be illumined. He means that at the core of our souls, the center of what makes us us, that that would be awakened by the Spirit to not only see God for who He is, but to savor Him for who He is. My grandmother, friends, had no seminary degree, had no college degree, think, I think, had a high school uh, education. I'm not even sure about that. I know her husband didn't. Uh, But my grandmother knew God better than most of the seminary professors that I sat under. Because she pursued God to know Him 
and enjoy and not just pursue information about it. And that's the goal. That's what Paul's after. And by the way, two really fast things. I'm going to say these and move fast on. Uh, since Paul is praying that this would happen, that we would know God and experience Him in our hearts, uh, at, the, uh, at the level of our hearts, that means at least two things. We can infer two things. One, that if he has to pray that the Spirit would enlighten our hearts to see and savor God, that means that we cannot do this on our own. It's not a mathematical formula. In other words, we've got to sit ourselves under the disciplines of, uh, of prayer and Bible and community and pray that the Spirit would awaken us. I could say a lot more about that, but I'm going to move on. But the other thing that we can note, that we can infer from this prayer, is not only that we can't do this on our own, we need the Spirit to do it on us, but secondly, if Paul prays for the Ephesians to have this, that means that heart-level illumination can leak. Paul prays this because he knows that some or all of us, in other words, are not experiencing this. He knows that we have verses 3 to 14 in the church. But he recognizes that sometimes it doesn't feel this way. Sometimes our hearts don't see the illumination, don't sense the illumination, and we need to pray for it. I could say much more about that, but I'm going to move on. We need to get to this hope. So he's praying that we would know God. And remember, I said three things. Pray that we would know God and the hope of his calling. That's inside this first point. What is that hope you should be asking right now? Well, we need to pray that we would not only believe the realities of verses 3 to 14, but we would experience them, particularly the hope to which he has called us as believers. And what is this hope that we need to not just know with our minds, but with our hearts? Well, the hope to which God has called us is our redemption in Christ. The thing that Paul just talked about in verse 7. Remember, this is a letter, guys. There's no chapters and verses when he wrote this. So he just mentioned this. That's the hope. Verse 7, the thing he just talked about. It. Look at it again. Slide back to verse 7. In Him, we, the church, those that are trusting in Christ, in Him we have positional truth. Present tense active. We have redemption. What is redemption? Look at verse 7. The forgiveness of our trespasses. The forgiveness of our sins. How did this come? We'll look at it again. Verse 3. Through His what? Blood. By the sacrifice of Christ. This is the Gospel. That we as Christians believe. If you're not a Christian, you're here sort of evaluating the Christian in faith. So glad that you're here. Welcome. This is what we believe. This is how we are saved. By grace. Not because of anything that we've done. We're messed up. Me, messed up. Only by grace through faith in the work of Christ on the cross as He lays His life down for sinners. The perfect Holy One. Died and raised as we'll see in a moment. And so because he, his sacrifice was received as in evidence in the resurrection, we too that trust in him can have new life by his blood. And so God lavished this redemption upon us that believe by his grace. And look at verse 9, it kind of keeps going. He made known to us the mystery of his will. This is all under the hope that he wants us to be illumined to see and experience. He made known to us the mystery of his will. And what is that mystery of his will? What's well, the plan where in the fullness of time, God will bring all things together in Christ. Things in heaven and things on the earth. That's verse 10, which is the restoration of all things. So Paul is praying, then to kind of bring it back into verse 18, Paul is praying that the local church there in Ephesus, and by extension, we, Restoration Church, would not only believe in the hope of that redemption, but we would have our hearts to be illumined to experience its reality. That we would see that plan of redemption in our own lives, in our lives together, and we would savor it today, now, every day. See, we, friends, we as Christians have been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved Son. 
We are no longer citizens of this world. We are not citizens of the earth. We are citizens of heaven. We are aliens. We are foreigners. We are exiles. And so, therefore, as the world groans, we lament the present realities, but we mourn, though, differently. We mourn as those that have hope. That have hope. Not the kind of hope that sort of hopes for some good weather tomorrow. You know, guys like me hope it stays warmer longer. No, not that kind of hope. Biblical hope is a certain hope. Certain. We are praying that God would have us to know Him. That our hearts would be illumined to see Him and to savor Him. The present and the coming redemption. God, we would pray, may we see and savor that Christ has forgiven us of all of our sins. God, may we see and savor that by our redemption we are sons and daughters of You. Caught up in this story to bring heaven to earth. So Paul is praying. And so church family, we do not have to only study our redemption, our great hope. We need to pray that we would experience its realities. Too often, I think many of us are hopeless, right? Some of you feel that way today. As I mentioned earlier, that sometimes I can feel that way. A lot of us are not hopeful. Paul knows the church in Ephesus dealt with the same thing. See, I think sometimes some of us, people like myself, sometimes think, well, with the inception of the Internet, we're living in a different world. No, the Bible tells us that there's nothing new under the sun. Just as it was back then, they, they too were experiencing, the Ephesians were experiencing fear and death and lovelessness. All these things existed just as much as they did then, uh, today as they did uh, back then as they do today. And so when uh, these things press in, guys, we need to, uh, and tempt us to be hopeless, we need to pray. So that we would be hopeful by rehearsing these realities. Paul says, no, in Christ you have redemption. That's verse 7. And then he goes on to say in verse 18, and I pray that you would not just know this redemption with your heads, but you would know this redemption like a husband knows his wife. Like a farmer knows his field. Like a mother knows her child. Like a coffee lover loves a warm cup of coffee on a cold day. No redemption like that. So that you would be hopeful. See, too many of us know our hopelessness. We're familiar with them. Our fears and our fears. We tend to focus on them. We tend to live in them. We tend to rehearse them. And we spiral down. And it's understandable, right? Because these things are real. And they're hard. But the hope of redemption, friends, is just as real and far more glorious. It is a reality, though it sometimes does not seem like it which explains why we need to unceasingly pray that our hearts would be illumined to see it. We need to rehearse it. We need to write about this hope of our calling. We need to talk about it. We need to pray about it. We need to remind each other of it. And as we do this, the Spirit is illumining us, illumining our hearts to see and experience us. And so, Christian, you need to know Christ has forgiven you of all of your sins. You have been adopted as a son or daughter of God. He has a place for you in heaven. God has called you to that. It's yours. And since He has called you to that, as we will see, nothing is stronger than God than no one can take you, take those promises away from you. So in other words, friends, as I sometimes like to say, we need to learn to see the world in translucence, not in opaques. And you're to see things, but see through things. See your sin, yes. Repent of sin. But see through it and onto Christ's atonement for that sin and enjoy the reality by the power of the Spirit. See your failures, but see through it. 
and on to Christ's success for you. Lament of the difficulty of your job, but see through it and know that in the fullness of time you will have a job that you will always enjoy. Isaiah 65 talks about that. Yes, we will have jobs in heaven. And the difficulty or the difference is going to be that as we work, we're going to love it all the time. Paul, I think, sums all of this up so well in 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18 when he says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look, which is to say, as the eyes of our hearts are enlightened by the Spirit to uh, to not just to to not to just, just look at the things that are seen, but look at the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Don't forget to pray, beloved. See these things, but also notice in that passage he's praying it in an us form. John did a great job of highlighting that last week. He's praying for us, the corporate people of God. Don't just pray these things for yourselves. Pray for this as an us, as a people. Pray this for other churches that you have heard have faith in the Lord Jesus and are loving the saints. Pray this for this body. Pray that the churches of the United States would hope in the making the church may make her know to the make, make her know the hope of God, the glory of God, know Him, enjoy Him. Pray that for other churches. You hear us do that every week. See, friends, the longing for a better world is real. And there is an answer. There is a real hope. But friends, it is not in our institutions. It is not in our politicians. And it is not in our pastors. It's in Christ. And He is bringing a better world. Pray that we would know God by knowing the hope of our calling. Secondly, pray that we would know the riches of God's people. Pray that we would know the hope of God's calling. Secondly, pray that we would know the riches of God's people. So don't lose sight of what Paul is praying there. Remember that the Spirit of God would give wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of the Father of glory. And by knowledge, he's more than information, that's part of it. He means experiential joy and confidence. And one aspect of that knowledge is seeing and savoring the hope of God's calling, the redemption. And secondly, he then goes on to further explain that the knowledge as being enlightened to know the riches, do you see it there? The riches of His, of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. They would know the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. Now go back to verse 1. Got your Bibles, just flip back over there. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul is writing to who? To the saints of Ephesus. Saints means holy ones or ones that are set apart. Uh, They are not a special class of Christian as another church has taught. They are all those that are counted faithful in Christ. That's verse 1. You can cross-reference me there. Or as we just saw in verse 7, all those who by grace through faith in Christ have redemption, the forgiveness of sins through the blood of Christ. And Paul prays here that the church in Ephesus would know God by their being illumined to see and savor the riches of God's glorious inheritance and the saints. See, whereas before, Paul was talking about the inheritance that we receive. That's verse 11 and 14. This is different. Here, Paul is talking about the inheritance that God receives in us. You can see that in the passage when it says there in verse 18, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? 
And so what Paul prays here, I think, is explained well by F.F. Bruce, who said of this passage, quote, Paul prays here that his readers may appreciate the value which God places on the saints, on the church. His plan to accomplish his eternal purpose through them as the first fruits of the reconciled universe of the future. Unquote. In other words, Paul is praying that we, God's saints, might know God, namely by our seeing the riches, the value of God's people in the church. Paul is praying to have us see and savor God by helping us see the church as he sees the church, not as we might see the church. And Paul is understanding through this prayer, he understands that the more that we do that, the more that we see the glorious riches in the church, the more that we do that, the more that we might know God, the more that we would see and savor God. But we've got to be really clear here as to who these saints are, who these inheritance, who this inheritance of God is. We've got to be really clear about that so that we can know exactly who to see and savor, who to see and enjoy. Well, he makes it really clear, does, Paul does back in verse 13. In him, he says, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Or he says in verse 15, we just saw, these are the people who have faith in the Lord Jesus and love the saints. Or even as we'll see in verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? In other words, the inheritance of God is not just everybody on planet Earth. That's not what it says. Nor is it everyone that claims necessarily to be in Christ. It's only those that have heard the gospel, believe or trust the gospel as is evidenced by their loving the saints, desiring to know God. Those that have been cleansed by the blood of Christ, trusting in Christ alone for salvation. See, Paul is praying that we would know those people by our seeing and savoring them, knowing that in them is a rich inheritance to God. Now friends, I believe this has to be one of the most neglected ways of knowing God in the life of most confessing Christians. Especially in America. we just got to be honest about this. Knowing the church, loving the church, being part of God's people, getting to know them as a way in which to know and enjoy God. It's just a way, just something that doesn't happen often to many confessing Christians. And I think that's because we, here in America, we, we focus on the individual, on the personal relationship with God. Which, of course, is true. But at the, we do that, I think, oftentimes at the expense, at the expense of the corporate people of God. This rich inheritance that God has in an assembly of people that He has bought. Time and time again, I'll meet people in the city and we'll, I'll talk to them about Jesus and they'll say, yes, I'm a Christian. And as I talk to them, I'll ask them, well, where do you go to church? Where do you assemble? Since you're part of the assembly, where do you assemble with them? And they will oftentimes say, the strong majority will say, uh, well, I don't go to church. Or they'll say, sometimes I go to this church. And whether or not that church believes the gospel, you know. And even those that I think regularly attend a church service, maybe like this one, maybe keep themselves at arm's reach from the church. And I understand why. Because it's hard to be known. It's hard to be known. Many of us are uncomfortable with ourselves. We have doubts. We have fears. Or some of us have been burned by a church community before. Or we've just gotten used to spending time in our online communities. And we just find it even more and more difficult to step out into a community because it's too hard. 
And so it makes sense why it's hard for Christians to be meaningfully involved in a gospel-believing church. But listen, friends, if we are going to know God, if you want to know God, if you want to experience the joy of God, if we are going to experience the hope to which we have been called, then we are going to have to discernibly come to know the wealth of His people. Which means we are going to have to take vulnerable, oftentimes awkward steps into the life of a healthy, gospel-believing church. Paul says here, he prays here, that's one of the important ways in which we grow in knowing God. By our knowing the value of His people. Not at a distance. Not online. Not by showing up every now and again when something else isn't going on. Now, If we are going to know God, we're going to have to prioritize spending time with His people. We're going to have to take the very difficult step of getting to know them and have them to get to know us and all of us. Not just the plastic smiles that we can easily put on on Sunday mornings. The struggles. The joys. Paul prays here. uh, Paul's prayer here shows that this is one of the fundamental ways in which we can come to know God. And so friends, if you wonder why we at Restoration Church are such fuddy-duddies about church membership, this is why. Because we, Not only because we see it as a biblical value, because we see it as an important way in which to know God. We're trying to love you in that way. But as I said, I realize that this can be hard for a lot of you. I can remember doing a membership discussion with a, a, a woman that became a member of our church. And we were talking in the membership meeting about the, the need to, the importance of attending members' meetings. And uh, she shared with me how terrified she was to go to members' meetings. Because the church that she grew up in, members' meetings were not very warm and nice and friendly. It was awful for her. It was very, very hard for her. So you can imagine the kind of courage that this woman needed to have when she showed up to that first meeting. But she came. And she came to another one, and another one, and another one. And by the grace of God, our members' meetings are joyful and kind and good and loving and family-like. And she grew to love it. Such that I remember when she left here, when she moved away... I remember her weeping, hugging person after person after person. Why? Because she came to know God through you. That's what happens. That's what Paul's praying for. Another, a better narrative overcame that bad one. She grew to see and savor the riches of God's inheritance in the church. It took some faith, it took courage in Christ to show up, to divulge her own failures. But she was met with love and grace. And she literally saw the answer to this prayer. And so have countless others, not only in this church, but in countless churches around the world. This happens every single day, every week. Now I realize it's kind of strange to think of this church as the riches of God's glorious inheritance. Right? Seems a little odd, doesn't it? I mean, just take a look around. I mean, 130 people gathered in a high school auditorium. God's riches? His glorious inheritance, these people, you know, listening to a short, bald man who, you know, couldn't hardly score anything on the SAT scores and is a barrel full of failures himself. I mean, this is God's glorious inheritance. Well, in the eyes of the world, friend, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of wealth here. There might be uh, some here that maybe even see coming here this morning, you're sort of regretting the decision, right? Uh, Well, I could have had more wealthy time staying at home and sleeping. Reading a book. That was more wealthy time. 
You could have gone to a conference or something that was more meaningful. And the world might agree, right? It's not as though the Washington Post is knocking down to get in here and see the wealth of this gathering. And this is why we have to go back to what we talked about a moment ago regarding hope. Christians do not focus on the things that are seen. We focus on the things that are unseen. We don't focus on the here and the now. We, these things are transient. We focus on eternal things, Paul says. And as hard as it might be to imagine, this assembly is a preview of the heavenly assembly. Where a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will gather and worship the Lamb of God who has taken away the sin of the world. Inside this assembly is a people who pictures the glorious inheritance of God. The one family where we are all known All of us. We are all accepted and loved in our fears and our flaws and our failures. The family that by the righteousness of Christ will one day be redeemed and have glorified bodies. I love how C.S. Lewis writes about this. C.S. Lewis writes, he says, I read read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. It is not, he says. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. To be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, that's this church, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in his son. It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is, Lewis says. And he goes on to reference this, the glorified Christian. I love this quote. You know, I think about this, so next time you think you talk to me and you think I'm really dull, just remember this quote, right? He's, Lewis says, To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. That is how God sees His children. His church. His people who's redeemed. And so do you want to know God? Well, if you've trusted in Christ... Don't only join a church, but get to know the people for whom Christ died and make yourself known to them. Love them. It will require honesty. It will require inconvenience. It will involve uh, courage. It will involve involve time. It will involve plenty of awkward moments. All the kinds of things that this world is doing its best to mitigate. And yet, that's part of the ingredients to bring about knowing God by knowing His glorious people. You've got to learn to... Know God by investing yourself in this way. Friends, I've never met a healthy Christian that walked with God that was not meaningfully involved in getting to know a church. That's not a coincidence. It's one of the ways God has made it possible to know Him. And so we see that we need to pray, that we need to, hope, we need to know the hope of God's calling. Pray that we would know the riches of God's people. Thirdly, finally, pray that we would know the power of God's Son. That we would know the power of God's Son. The crescendo of Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, and I think by extension us, is found in their knowing the power that is available to them as is evidence in the resurrection and ascension of Christ. You can see that there in verse 19 and 20. That they would know the power that is found, that is seen, that is evidence in the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. Verse 17 prays that they would know God, having the eyes of their heart to A, know the hope to which He has called them, B, to know what are the glorious riches of the inheritance in the saints, and three, what is the, I love this word, immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. 
according to the working of His great might, uh, in that he, when, he worked, when He worked in Christ, when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places. And I want you to take note of the power that is given to Christ. Who's Jesus? That's a great question. Who do you believe Jesus to be? Well, who does the Bible claim that He is? Well, look at verse 21. Jesus is far. You should circle that word. Jesus is far above. Here's another word to circle. All rule, authority, power, and dominion. Jesus is not only above them, He's far above them. Not only is He far above some of them, He's far above all of them, it says. Not only is He far above them, He's far above all powers. And since Paul will go on to talk about how we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the principalities of this world, I believe that Paul is including in this the devil and his minions. He's way above them. Just as we see, right, if you read the Bible. And by the way, if you're not a Christian and you want to read the Bible with somebody just to sort of understand who Jesus is more, would you come talk to me? I'd love to match you up with somebody that can do that for you. But you'll notice right at the beginning of the book of Mark, demons come into the presence of Jesus. You'll see quickly. What do they do when they come into the presence of Christ? Bow, down they go. They know his power. Greater is he that is in you, Christian, than he that is in the world. That's what John says. Jesus' authority is total. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. This age would be the present chapter of redemption that we find ourselves in, but also the world that we know is coming. He has authority over all of that. This is exactly what Jesus claimed for Himself in Matthew 28. All authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. So friends, just know, if you're not a Christian trying to understand the Christian faith, we believe that Christ understands Himself to be authoritative over all things. And we want to give ourselves to His Lordship. But there's more. Look at verse 22. And he, that's, remember this is going way back into verse 17, the Father of glory. And he put all things under his, Jesus' feet. He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things, there it is again, to the church. So this is referencing the fulfillment of prophecy, most notably Psalm 110, verse 1, one of the most frequently quoted prophecies in the Bible. This is referencing the fact that Jesus fulfills a prophecy that was made hundreds of years before this. Jesus fulfills that. He is the head over all things, and that language of the church there means that He had all things put under His feet, and He has been given as head for the good of the church. That's what that means. For the good of the church. For the benefit of the church. In other words, the supremacy of Christ, that's why, by the way, that's why Restoration Church, just so you know, that's our mission statement. That's why we use that word. Here, right? There's a little piece of it, right? Making disciples that delight in the supremacy of Christ. It's for the good of the church, for the benefit of the church. So where Satan and the world cower, we who are in Christ find peace and rest. In verse 23, the church is Jesus' body. The fullness of Him who fills all in all. Meaning the church, God's people, is not splattered with some flecks of glory and authority of Christ. No, we are drenched with the glory and the authority of Christ. Drenched with it. Ever been pushed into a pool with your clothes on? What an odd transition, Nathan. Yeah. 
It illustrates this point. When I read this point, trying to understand fills all. How do, how do you understand that? The thing that it made me think of, when you get pushed into a pool with your clothes on, right? All of your clothes are drenched. Your body's drenched with water. Well, friends, that's a good picture of what is being referenced here. The church is drenched with the glory and authority of Christ. Paul's prayer is that we wouldn't not just know these realities with our heads, we would experience this power in our hearts. That the power of the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, the rule and authority that is given to Him, the name that is above every name for now and always might be realized by us today as we hope in tomorrow. And this is what it means when we pray to know God. We would know His hope, know His people, know the power of His Son. But once again, I realize that some of you are thinking, this doesn't seem like a reality that Jesus has so much power. Does it seem like He has this kind of authority? I understand your concern, and I would quickly remind you that that's why Paul's praying that we would feel it. He's praying it unceasingly because he recognizes that it doesn't always seem that way. But also, I recognize that many of you are aware of the history of the church where we have been pressed in, persecuted, beaten, driven away, and ambushed time and again. Many of you know that cancer, disease, discrimination is as rampant in the church as outside the church. So what gives, you might say? Either Paul's prayer is never realized or it's all just a big farce. Or, there's a third option. The supremacy of Christ over all things is not measured in the same way the world measures power. I want to tell you a story that I think illustrates this power that is not seen by the world. I think my wife said when I told it to her yesterday, I shared this story before, but it's so good. I want to tell it to you again. There's a pastor by the name of Sandy Ray. Sandy Ray uh, was pastoring a people and he goes to Washington, D.C., incidentally, to be part of this Congress. He calls it a Congress, a meeting where he learns a number of things. And over the course of his time in that meeting, he finds out a number of things that anger him. They make him upset, tempting him toward despair, toward hopelessness. He leaves that Congress and goes back to his church. And as he's standing up in front of the church, much like I am to you today, he says, he tells the story that the, the church is praying and singing and testifying, he says, with great joy about the glory and the supremacy of Christ. And he says in his own heart, he's up there looking at this and he says, these poor people don't understand. These people, he even says, these people, his own church, are pitiful. They don't know what's going on in the world. He was angry. He said, but then there was this woman by the name of Miss Middleton. Miss Middleton was an older woman. And he says that she, he saw her walk out to the middle of the road, maybe down a road just like this. And Miss Middleton began to say and sing, I ain't uneasy, Lord. I ain't uneasy. I got my ticket to glory. I ain't uneasy. And Sandy Ray responds and he said to himself, Miss Middleton has news that Washington, D.C. doesn't have. That's the power that Paul is praying for here. A power that is indiscernible in the eyes of the world. That is experienced in the life of his people time and again. So oftentimes it's just looked over. Christians do not measure the strength of their power the way that the world does. The supremacy of Christ extends far above the weak and temporal rulers of this world. Therefore, we do not hope in the Oval Office when we have an occupied throne in heaven. We do not need tanks 
when we have the Word of Christ which never returns void. We do not love the world since we have the love of Christ which never fails. Take the world. Take it. Give me Jesus. The strength of His might, praise Paul, is immeasurably great. It's found in the heart that has been enlightened to know God. No, a day is coming when all will be made right and they can endure all things. Paul prays. That's the context of Philippians 4 that all the athletes write in Philippians 4.13 and get wrong all the time. I've learned how to abound whether I have a little or a lot. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In other words, I can abound all the time because of Jesus in me. The strength of His might, Paul prays, is immeasurably great. It empowers us to not just take, but to give. Not to bully, but to love. Not to be proud, but to be humble. It empowers us to not demand, but to serve. As the Puritans have taught us so well, to, that to be low is to be high. That the broken heart is the healed heart. To have nothing is to possess all. To have the cross is to wear the crown. The valley is the place of vision. Christians know that in ways that the world does not. And so friends, if you find a people willing to gather under the Lordship of Christ, confessing their sin to God and one another, singing songs of lament, of praise and in thanksgiving, while not succumbing to the shifting wor- words of this world's doctrines, but towing the line of Christ and His Word, there you find strength. There you find a strength that this world cannot overcome. There you see the power of the resurrection and the ascension at work. Friends, I have seen marriages healed. I've seen depression undone. I've seen sadness turn to joy more times than I can count. You watch our brother and sister Jeffrey and Monica Ramos, members of our church, who have gone through all kinds of physical toil. And they look to Jesus and say, He's all I need. And they're fine. And they serve. And I'm not talking about a kind of superficial crutch kind of joy and peace. I'm talking a deep and abiding kind of thing. I'm talking about the deep reservoirs of grace that have led God's people to the still waters and the green pastures of restoration, knowing a better day is coming. And what's more, friends, when you want to think about the power of Christ that is in His people, just take a look at what comes next in Ephesians. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Paul rehearses for us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work on the sons of disobedience. And we were uh, by nature children of wrath. Friend, do you know that if you're in Christ, you were dead? And if you woke up today trusting Jesus, as is evidenced by your love for Him, listen, that didn't happen by anything that you've done. That happened by the power of God in Christ Jesus. Your faith today is held by Jesus. That's powerful. You cannot overcome that. Nothing on planet Earth can overcome that. Just the mere evidence of a single Christian that trusts in Jesus at the age of 10 all the way to 100 and dies in Christ is a powerful testimony of the supremacy of Christ, the power of His resurrection and His ascension. Pray that we would hope in God's calling. Pray we would enjoy the riches of God's inheritance. Pray that we would revel in the power of His Son in our hearts. True knowledge, says Thomas Watson, makes a man fall out of love with himself. So we would know God and know His people. The experience of our redemption, friends, leaks. We live in a world that's hard. May we give ourselves to the unceasing prayer that God would be glorified as we seek to know Him and enjoy Him forever. Let's pray.
Thank you for the privilege of prayer, God. What a joy prayer is that we can pray to you in Christ to know that we'll be heard by the power of your Spirit. And so we bring ourselves to you, God. I pray that this church and every church that trusts you would know you. Not just with our heads, but with our hearts, with our fingers, with our soul, our affections. When we know the power of your, of the hope at which you have called us. When we know the riches of your inheritance in your people. And we, that we know the power of your son and his resurrection and ascension and soon return. As we go through this life's difficult trials and tribulations, God, I pray that we would testify as Miss Middleton did. I ain't uneasy. I ain't uneasy. For I know my home. I pray this for the name and the glory of Christ. Amen.